Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Welcome back, everyone, to the State of Developer Education. I am so excited for this episode with Caitlin Davey, who does documentation at MongoDB. She's also worked on developer education and docs at some amazing companies like Twilio, General Assembly, and many more. So I can't wait to hear what you have to say. How's it going, Caitlin? It's good. Yeah, it's a wonderful day to be writing and editing docs, though I don't do that much of that myself these days, but help support my team too. Fantastic. Well, I'm excited to hear more about that as we go here. The place I like to start with all of my guests is with origin stories. I love to hear how people ended up where they are and what kind of drew them into tech and education in the first place. So let's go back in time and hear, how did you get started with this? Yeah, like many folks who end up in documentation or instructional design or learning and development training type roles, my path was really meandering and truly it was an accident that I ended up where I did. A beautiful accident though, or a wonderful one. I studied sociology in university. I'm a first-generation university graduate, so neither of my parents had university degrees, and that really impacted how I navigated the university system on my own and meant that I tried a lot of different things and had kind of a stuttery path to my graduation and for my undergraduate degree. I started out thinking I wanted to be an English major and took a really specialized first-year English program where it was thematically organized and happened to take one sociology elective and realized I really loved and was super interested in how people operate and appear in groups and work together, function together in groups, whether that group is 200. And so really dug into sociology and got excited about that. After I graduated my undergrad, I was like, unsure of what I wanted to do. And in one of my part-time jobs was like tinkering around with the website for the company and realized like I was really interested in creating things with technology and applied to a postgraduate certificate program called Interactive Multimedia and learned programming and project management and some UX skills in that certificate program, which was really cool. It was like an eight month, like kind of before the boot camp setup. This was back in 2011, 2012. And then worked in as a software developer for many years, and many being three to four, and really was excited and interested in that, but felt myself starting to like be curious again about what I wanted to learn next and where I wanted my depth of expertise to be. So I was working for a children's media team and was really interested in like learning in kids media. We had a child psychologist on staff and so got really curious about education and teaching 
with and through technology. I also had been participating and volunteering with a group that's originated in Toronto, Canada called Ladies Learning Code. Now it's called Canada Learning Code. And it really was these really cool in the origin or at at the start, these cool one day workshops where you could do a deep dive into like Ruby or coding language and kind of like get a taste for making something and loved my experience with them so much that I actually got involved doing curriculum writing for them while I was in my graduate degree. So fast forward there a little bit, I decided to study instructional technology and media, which is really kind of what it sounds like. It's teaching with and through technology and exactly what I was interested in. And I so happened to be one of those fortunate people that my grad degree is actually sort of what I do now. And have had many jobs along the way doing curriculum writing and training largely around technical concepts and probably entirely in informal spaces. So non-traditional like classroom education, like in a university or a school setting. So that's sort of my sweet spot. And that's what has led me to like be excited or energized about all these different spaces where teaching and learning are happening that aren't necessarily what we think of as traditional school. So informal learning is like really what excites me most. And documentation is like another channel for me to explore learning in these ways. A place I'd love to start here is sort of like how you think about education given your background. And what I mean by that is A lot of the people I talked to, I'll say they were like developers who found out they had an interest in education. And you have this like very strong foundation of education, like instructional design and like the actual fundamentals of how do people learn. And you also worked at a lot of media companies, which I think is really, really kind of like novel. I'm curious if like coming at education through that sort of like media pathway has changed how you think about it at all. And if that presents itself on a day-to-day basis with other like developer educators that may have come at it from another direction. Yeah, it definitely does. And it helps me think about learning as like multimodal. So mode being like a podcast or a textbook or a video. And I think when we think about education, we tend to think about distribution of information from a source to a learner. And I just think that there's so much more like nuance and exciting ways to think about learning, whether it's like peer-to-peer learning that's enabled through technology, or whether it's being able to like loop or repeat concepts through like watching a video or even like breaking a video up into a GIF, which was something I tried when I was working at Canada Learning Code. It definitely did not work. We had some really glitchy GIFs that I believe are now gone from the internet, thankfully. But yeah, I think that there's lots of ways that media can enable or unlock conceptual learning and also help learners get closer to the source. Like I think about learning anytime I've tried to like install something in my household or try to like build a piece of furniture. Like my first step certainly is not to read the instruction booklet or 
to even like look at the packaging. It's like to go on YouTube and put in the like model, make a number so that I can watch somebody do that. And that application or that way of training or teaching is so much closer to what you're going to be doing itself. You're watching someone do the thing. You're not like trying to translate like text into application or into doing the building. It's just so much closer to how you'd apply that information or that piece of knowledge. So yeah, it just excites me to think about what are the best ways or modalities to teach different things? How do we provide different inroads for different types of folks or different kind of like moments in time? So that I think is what I've taken away from media is that media can be a tool and the medium can be really important depending on what you're trying to teach. Yeah. How does that come into play with something like driver documentation? Because when I think about drivers and writing docs, like I would only imagine it's very text heavy. There's not a physical visual thing that someone can necessarily relate to, like if you're installing a light switch, right? How does that like multimodal learning play into something that's like so heavily technical like that? We really try and think about how folks will be using the drivers, which is largely in like a programming example. And so making sure our examples are really thorough, thoughtful, have clear comments, because we can't assume that a reader is going to read paragraphs of text ahead of time. And most often, there's some like bouncing back and forth between like trying the code example, looking at why something perhaps didn't work, breaking it down, making your own changes. And that's something I observed at Twilio as well, which is really has strong developer-focused documentation as well. And that's sort of what led me into being on this driver's documentation team where our audience is like developers, is to think about what are the ways that developers are going to be using these drivers or using these APIs. And largely it's through coding. And so having code examples front and center is really important. How do you tailor those code examples and documentations to a variety of different readers and users? Like one of the things I see from our end at MLH is that you could show the same docs to 10 different people and like they're all going to have a totally different perception of it based on their skill level, their context, their experience. How do you control for that? Yeah, that's a really meaty problem to solve for. And I say that as a vegetarian, but a very challenging problem, I guess, but a different way, because different types of developers will come and use your documentation at different moments in their developer journey. And maybe it's novice learner who's just getting started and is maybe a student and has heard about MongoDB from one of their classes or from an MLH hackathon, which I know we partner with y'all. And they're just trying to like build their skills and understand how to like truly get started. And then you might have an enterprise developer who is once again, like doing setup or making a modification and needs to revisit the docs for that. And so I've seen lots of different approaches for this. I think the best approach is really to make sure your documentation is incredibly findable and navigable. And that involves like SEO, titling, making sure that the examples are really like 
thoughtfully packaged or written so a developer can get to them depending on what they need and apply it in their workplace or their project. So all that to say, like, I think the content plays a big role in that, but so does making sure that you have enough sort of coverage or scaffolding for beginner developers to start and then more expert developers to find and modify the aspects of the products that they need to as well. And I think part of that too is like, when I work with my product partners, we often joke that the like development of the product is like really straightforward. And then the like last chunk of the development journey, so like probably more than half is spent like solving for edge cases. So by the time like they get to our documentation team and they're like, cool, can you document these things? What's on their mind is all these edge cases. And so really thinking through like, what are the edge cases that developers are going to come up against and what ones do we need to document and what are like really sort of remote edge cases that can be captured or sort of integrated into other parts of the documentation such that they don't like take over or dominate the docs. Interesting. This is a little bit of a tangent, but I've heard some people suggest that AI tools and large language models can help with the problem you're describing of personalizing technical content for different skill levels. Is that something you've thought about much or played around with at all? Like, I'm curious to hear your hot take on that. Yeah. I mean, I'm certainly not an expert on AI, but I think it has a lot of really amazing potential to expedite developers' work and to be really truly like that chat piece in chat GPT because our documentation right now is like a single source that you can go to. And for the most part, you can't really like communicate with it. When you need to communicate, you're communicating with like a support person or perhaps like developer relations person at a conference. And that's where those conversations historically are happening or have happened. But being able to like ask for modifications or ask for edits or like chat through from a source or with data and have it be manipulated with AI, I think is like a huge area of opportunity that we're just starting to explore at MongoDB. We have some really cool AI initiatives happening in our docs team one that is a docs chat book that is like front and center in our documentation landing page where you can start to like chat through code examples and ask questions and get information surfaced and have that sort of like conversational engagement with the data and materials that are in such abundance in our doc site and kind of across different sources. I'm honestly really excited for that to be more commonplace. I think, especially new developers, they don't really know what they don't know, which means they often don't even know what to search for to find an answer. And being able to explain it in normal conversational speech could perhaps get people to an answer much, much quicker than knowing the particular jargon they're looking for. Yeah. Or even like search tidbits, like plus and quotes and all these things that we've had to learn to work with search engines and then instead having the technology kind of like work with us in our natural language, I think is really exciting. Yes, I definitely remember 
I don't know where it was, like maybe at the library or something when I was growing up, they taught us how to like talk to a search engine. Uh, <laughs> this is like this weird core memory. I don't think they teach that anymore, but. Uh, I know I learned that in computer class too. We had to mm-hmm. do like a search activity where it was like, get from here to here. And like, I remember like copy and pasting links or like <laughs> like snippets that we would see on the web pages to like get to what we were ultimately looking for. I mean, I do think it made me better at searching, but I'm not sure that that's a skill that we will all need going forward. <laughs> Probably not, but you never know. <laughs> yeah, That's funny. So one of the things you touched on earlier was this idea of like multimodal learning. And I've heard a lot of people kind of conflate that with the idea of learning styles that mm-hmm. different people have different ways of learning that are very particular to them. And I saw, I think it was like a talk you gave about this concept and sort of debunking it almost. I'd love for you to like explain that to people here who may not have seen the talk yet. And I know that I'm sure you go into much more depth there, but I found it fascinating that I always assumed that that was a thing. I was kind of surprised to hear that you had a differing opinion there. Yeah, it definitely is not an opinion. It's like backed by a lot of research that I did not do. People far, far smarter than me have. Whenever I'm looking or interested in a learning idea, I go to this amazing blog called Three Star Learning Experiences. And the idea being sort of tracking with the Michelin system, like one, two, three, like we're cutthroat and like what is and isn't like a true learning experience. And they do a lot of like, translating from academic text into application or nuggets that you could then take away. And one of their blog posts, which I'm happy to send the link to you afterwards as well, is around learning styles or learning types. And the research, this is sort of like top of the noggin here, but the research tends to show that people like the idea of learning styles But when you have learners identify their learning style and then learn in that learning style, they don't actually perform better. So for example, if I said, I'm a visual learner, give me an infographic any day. I can't learn from a textbook. I need pictures. And then you gave me a test that where I had to study from infographics and then apply the information in a text. I wouldn't necessarily do better learning from a visual learning style than learning from another type of learning style. So all this to say, like the research doesn't really show that learning in a learning style helps performance, like a task. But I do think there's something interesting about the idea that people really like learning styles and especially in informal learning where you need to harness motivation and give different opportunities or ways for folks to like ingest information. I think that that's a way to think through like, how can we make sure we're like doubling up on kind of the key pieces of information and covering the gaps that may exist in our content in different ways so that people can find what they want in a way that works for them at that moment in time. Right. Like even if there is no proven performance benefit, people still may have a preference. So like, that's super interesting. I had never heard that before. And I, I, it kind of blew my mind because like, I've always felt that way about myself, right? I'm sure a lot of people self-describe that way where they gravitate towards a specific style of learning. 
and internalizing knowledge, right? And it's almost like a little bit of a placebo effect, it sounds like. Yeah, totally. And there's lots of ways, there's lots of types of learning that do work, are proven in research, are easy to apply to. I think about like segmenting and interleaving, which is like Mm. putting in different types of information or switching different types of information, like testing ahead of time or like pre-testing has a lot of benefit that's been proven. So yeah, I think there's like lots and lots to like tap that goes beyond learning styles too. A lot of the folks who I interview and also who listen to this work in DevRel in some form or another. And one of the things that comes up a lot is like, how do you measure impact, right? How do you demonstrate ROI to the business? I'd love to hear your perspective on how instructional design fundamentals have an impact. Because I think that the stuff you're describing, like I hear it and I'm like, wow, it would be awesome if more companies took actual like learning research into account in creating things like docs and tutorials. I don't know if it's as common as it should be. And I'm curious, like what you've seen the impact of that kind of work and that kind of like foundational knowledge is for an actual like business getting developers to adopt their products. Yeah, I think measurement is something that's always tricky, especially in like learning and in DevRel too. And like, how do we capture all these different inputs and make sure that we're making sense of them? And I think that there's like a few different measures or frameworks that come from instructional design that I always sort of defer to because they help me think about measurement and different types of measurement. And one is the Kirkpatrick model, which you may have heard of. So it is four levels of measurement. The first one is reaction, which is, did you like this? Yes or no. So similar to kind of what we were talking around learning styles is like, did you like learning this thing? Or like, did you enjoy these dogs? Oftentimes you'll see that in like a five star or a thumbs up, thumbs down. And then the second is learning. So to what degree are you able to learn or apply the target information? And then the third is like behavior change. So Kirkpatrick kind of comes from the the world of learning and development. And so like, is your behavior changing? Or like from a tooling perspective, like are you maybe switching from a relational database to a non-relational database after reading some MongoDB docs? Or are you signing up for a product or behavior could even look like dollar commit if you have a product that bills kind of incrementally. And then the last one is results, which are like business results. Like did the targeted outcome occur? Like did you grow your developer community? Are you training or getting people onboarded more readily onto MongoDB without have a one-to-one relationship with this support person. So yeah, I think that that model is one that I really sort of applied a lot in my days when I was working at General Assembly. And I think through from like the most basic to the most kind of complex, how are we knowing that we're meeting our goals along that journey? And I think it does a good job of thinking about like the individual developer, but also their work in context of developer community and then in context of like business impact for 
the products that they're leveraging, but also for what they are doing in their development world or project. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I would also imagine that there's some element of it that is a little bit invisible too. And what I mean by that is like we see examples all the time where people see a particular API, maybe it's a sponsor of an event, and they go to the docs and something's wrong. Like it's out of date or it's inaccurate or they're not able to follow it. And so they churn and no one ever hears about that. And so I would imagine that there's some element of like reducing churn certainly is something that you can measure. But like if docs are effective and they're doing their job well, people will have a smoother experience implementing. And that may surface itself in a lot of different ways that are not directly related to like all of these other things, right? Like like it feels like there's sort of element of it that like if you build it well, it reduces problems that you may have never even heard about otherwise. Yeah, totally. And I think that that's where docs and docs can have a really great education broadly, like a outward education team can have a lot of importance in representing developer empathy internally and advocating for product improvements or creating more ease because a lot of those things should be invisible. And in many ways, if we're over-documenting or it requires a lot of setup or instruction, that can be a signal that there's opportunities to improve the experience for developers. I love that. So are there any things that you see commonly come up with developer education teams that are like other misconceptions about learning, right? Like learning styles is perhaps one, but are there other things that commonly come up that perhaps are are commonplace in your world of instructional design, but not commonplace in the world of engineers and evangelists, perhaps? I'm trying to think of a few because there's certainly like measurement is definitely a big one. Like how do you measure that it's working? What are the measures that you're using? Do you use kind of like one big metric across all of your docs or a North Star or what I've heard often is like each kind of type of document or type of template has its own metric. So like you'd measure a tutorial differently than you would like API reference page and what you're looking for, the types of user behavior you'd be looking for in those would be different. I would say like style guides and style rules are a big thing and how do you automate those or how do you provide like the right level and amount of checks and how are you adapting your language or your style guides to how users are talking about or engaging with your product and taking sort of like more of an interpretive way of framing things tutorials or like guides and getting started and quick starts, whatever you want to call them, are like a big kind of area of focus. And I I think those are really opportune spaces to like focus a lot of attention on. Right now, we've been doing a big project around like archiving and managing the content that we have and the information that we do have, which sounds probably an easier task than it is, but we have a lot of assets at MongoDB and the bigger your team gets, the longer you've been around, the more you have to manage. And so I think that that is always an interesting exercise to like really get a sense of what are the pieces of information we have and how do we make sure that those are 
available to developers and that we're meeting or filling in the gaps and actually kind of connecting that back to my media days. I remember we would talk about like evergreen content or evergreen material. And for a period of time, I was the software developer for a parent's website. And every Halloween and every other holiday, like a top 20 crafts to do with your kids for this holiday would be kind of like our top ranking piece of content. And so I think taking that lens to documentation, like what is truly evergreen and thinking about it, again, just to add another level of nuance for my career, like what's information developers would already have in the world or elsewhere that they're coming into your doc site with and not taking that for granted, but thinking about what is evergreen information that we should make sure is always like surfaced and present versus point in time or changing information? And how are we making sure that that's clear for developers and providing that clarity through content admonitions and then just through the experience of the website? How do you solve that from like a tooling perspective? You're talking about archival, you're talking about keeping stuff up to date, you're talking about external references. I've heard a lot of different people talk about different learning management systems, content management systems, generation tools, whatever. There's a million approaches. How do you like to tackle it? At MongoDB, we use a docs as code approach, which is something that drew me into this role in this documentation team. I really wanted to be on a team that was Docs' code first because I think it helps technical writers build developer empathy. I also think it helps with things like versioning and tracking changes in this really like neat way. That being said, like we have a lot of tooling as well and we have a wonderful documentation platform team that supports the documentation writers to just do that job, which is great because as you said, like an LMS or a CMS or series of tool chains is like a whole other kind of job and role. Absolutely. So one of the things I've seen you talk about online is this idea of like cognitive load and documentation. How does that factor into actually like creating learning programs? Like how does that factor into a developer's experience learning something like MongoDB? What are sort of the fundamental concepts there that people need to understand? Yeah, so I gave a talk at a conference called Write the Docs, thinking about visuals and managing cognitive load through visuals. But there's lots of different ways that you can manage cognitive load in like little ways and big ways. And some of the little ways that I think are super important are like highlighting and drawing attention or managing an attention to where you want it to go through like font, color, images, sequencing or like breaking things apart, really simplifying the language so you can get what you want out of it. My worst nightmare is when I see like step one, A, B, two, and you're just like, no, we shouldn't have it be this way. And then when you think about like the level of construal, you're working backwards from there. Like, okay, I'm doing one and then I'm doing A and then I'm doing one A and B. And it's like too much information all at once to like process. So I think, yeah, like steps and sequencing can be really important ways to do that. Breaking information apart, highlighting I mentioned. There's a whole series of like really quick takeaways on visual representations to help 
support cognitive load, but those are the things I think about. And really in my day-to-day, the number one thing that I think about, and I think if you take away anything on like cognitive load and docs is just like simplifying language, really making sure that if you're using a, a complex term, it is essential. And it's either something you can assume developers know coming into your documentation or you're giving them that information through like a link to a reference page or an explanation. And then similarly with like acronyms that you're using the full spelling out, that you're sort of just checking assumptions along the way. And I think that that's where me as a sort of like lightly technical person can be a a powerful editor when I'm stepping in to help my team do some editing or doing a PR review, I really think through like, does this need to be here? Would they need to know that? Is this a term specific to this product? Where are we defining that? And sort of just like prompting or prodding to make sure that the right information is there and that we're making the message as simple as possible. That has anything to do with level or it has to do with ability or reading level. I think it's just really important to have like a simple, clear message, especially in documentation to assume that somebody is skimming it and that they're maybe like trying to solve for a bug and they're stressed out and like they need to like do this at 2 a.m. because they're on pager duty. So yeah, just having that sense of we don't always know how people are coming or when they're coming into our docs, but making it as clear as possible through simple messaging. Yeah, you don't want to need a thesaurus or something to like figure out (laughs) someone's docs. That's really interesting. I can think of so many examples where I've seen, especially like students struggle with these kinds of concepts where they're reading a tutorial or documentation that was probably designed for someone with quite a bit more experience than them. And they get stuck on what may be basic concepts for someone with a lot of experience, but like for them, it's like they've never even heard the word before. And it's not that they don't understand the underlying concept. They just don't know what to call it. Yeah. And getting kind of like stuck in language can be particularly tricky too. And so, yeah, just doing our very best to make sure that doesn't happen. And Mm -hmm. I've seen sites solve for that by putting kind of like, pre-work or pre-links at the top or learning objectives. So you expect what to get out of a page before you do yourself the service or disservice of reading a lot of content. So I think there's lots of ways that page structures and templates can help support or provide like different entry points and exit points that help different levels of learners or developers navigate. Yeah. This is a total non sequitur, but We talked earlier about how you started in media, and I know that you did some Nickelodeon and like TV shows that were educational. Have you ever thought about the idea of like TV show for developers that teaches people coding or coding concepts? I feel like I've never seen anything like that, but it feels like a natural extension of a lot of this stuff. Yeah, I haven't. To be fair, There's so many great YouTube channels out there that I think like really you just need like a deal, a network deal (laughs) to to pick one of those up. Yeah, the TV show I worked on at Nickelodeon had a STEM curriculum and we actually had a few coding episodes, 
which were really fun to do the structure of the show. And this is something like I kind of take away with me wherever I go is we had a really clear, clean curriculum mandate for every episode. It was like, what is the one concept we're teaching? How are we providing different moments of interactivity to help kids learn the concept or apply it or see it happen in different ways and then building a story arc around that. And so, yeah, we had really interesting kind of like complex concepts that we had to simplify and break down like a lever or like gravity or like color mixing. So lots of really like cool, what seemed like big complex things that we were able to like break down And think about like, how would we define that word? How would we simplify it? And then my role as a researcher on the education team was to go into kindergartens and show the story or show the episode in a really kind of rough form and get information or data on how it was working or landing. Were kids getting the concept that we had defined? Were there enough moments of interactivity or engagement Where was there sort of like some breaks in that? And for what we tested across three age groups, so three, four, five. And those are like really different developmental phases. So it was like kind of cool to see where we would be able to kind of catch everyone and where there would be maybe some like challenges or breaks. That's really cool. I used to watch like Bill Nye growing up. and. You're right that YouTube is probably where that's happening now. And I'm not on YouTube. I'm not that generation really. But it would be really cool if there was similar stuff for coding or robotics or things like that. And maybe there is. Maybe I'm just too old to know about it. But I've always kind of like dreamt about that a little bit. Yeah. Well, I love kids TV. Like, I just think it's so brilliant and creative and fun, which Mm -hmm. is why I wanted to work in it. There's a, a coding show called Dot. I'll have to look this up. Based on a book. And it's a cute show. Awesome. I will check that out. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I found it's, it on Wikipedia here. Nice. Yeah. That's the one that comes to mind. But again, I've been kind of out of the game for a little bit. So there's <laughs> new stuff that I'm just not aware of. <laughs> awesome. So outside of your work and outside of the companies you worked at, Are there any like developer educators or resources out there that you really like admire and think are doing a great job with this stuff? I will say I have gotten so much out of the Write the Docs community of practice. Everyone in that community is so generous with their time and ideas. The conferences are excellent every time they put them on. I mentioned three star learning experiences. There's a book that I love called Learning by Design that I always reference, especially when I need to think about like different types of learning or different skills. Is it, are you teaching learning for knowledge or learning for application? So I really enjoy that book. I do read a little, quite a bit of like hacker news, I think, to like stay up to date on like what's going on in industry. Yeah, I read my fair share of that. I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> no, I, I do too. There, there's a lot of fun stuff there. Yeah, 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 for sure. It's always interesting to think about like what bubbles to the top there. Yeah, those are the sources that come to mind. Yeah, I've been fortunate enough to 
build out my network of folks that work at different places or I've ended up at different places doing different types of docs work or education. So I like to schedule coffee chats and opportunities to connect to figure out what people are doing. I think there's like lots of cool like AI training and avatar stuff happening and also really cool try it live type docs. Like I think about like live cursors, live blocks and Netlify where you can kind of just like click deploy and it like auto magically sets up for you. So yeah, I look to other documentation sites a lot because I think lots of folks are doing interesting things in this space. And I still think there's a lot of like opportunity there, which is what makes me excited to come to work every day. I completely agree. For those coffee chats, a question I always like to ask people, and I like to end on this is, is there like any kind of like aspirational figure that you would want to grab for a couple hours and pick their brain? Teacher, scientist, developer, founder, could be anyone. I would love to chat with, which is so within my realm of of feasibility, but with some of the folks that have built out some of the like Stripe, like try it live Mm -hmm. stuff. And I've chatted with some of those folks at conferences, which are really cool. The other person that comes to mind, I think, is Adam Grant. And Mm -hmm. as a manager, I read a lot of his information to think about how I'm supporting my team and folks that report into me. So yeah, Adam Grant would be one. And I think just like organizational design is the work application of sociology in a way. So I like that or like it's in the same universe. So I find his work really interesting. Yeah. There's a really great book I read on the art of gathering. I would love to attend a gathering with Priya Parker just because I think that the intentionality that they bring to their work is so inspiring to me. And I think that that's something I would like to bring to my work too. I love that. That's one of those books that we've bought a lot of copies for a lot of people (laughs) who have worked here because it's so, I don't know, it's kind of like a philosophy that we aspire to, right? When we build our communities. Yeah. There's another book that has a goofy title, but it sort of reminds me of Priya Parker's work. It's called Chairs Are Where the People Go. And I just think the essay in the book is called Chairs Are Where the People Go. But it's from a facilitator who's the author. And he talks about like, we often forget that like when you host an event, you're having a gathering and you set the chairs up, that's where people are going to sit. And so if you set the chairs up like in rows, you're creating one type of environment. If you set them up in a circle, it's a very different type of environment and experience. And yeah, I think just like not overlooking the little details, especially when you're creating an experience is something that I think is really interesting to me. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Caitlin. I really enjoyed everything you had to share. And hopefully everyone who's listening did too. We'll send some links to the different blogs and books that you mentioned and some of your work as well, since I know you have a lot of really good talks out there. But I really enjoyed this and I hope everyone enjoyed listening. So subscribe for more. And yeah, happy hacking. The State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking. To find out more about Major League Hacking, 
and how we're educating the next generation of developers and helping the world's leading companies reach them, visit sponsor.mlh.io. And make sure to search for developer education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen and click like and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like it, please don't forget to leave a review and we'll give you a shout out on a future podcast. On behalf of the team here at Major League Hacking, thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking.